Hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Unpack podcast, the podcast for operators by operators. I'm Arvind Ayala, partner at Jodesic and your co-host. Hey, this is Vignesh. I'm your other co-host, a partner at Sierra Ventures. Today, we're very pleased to have the CEO of Jellyfish, Andrew Lau, joining us. Andrew has a prolific background, having been the VP of Engineering at Endeka, which was acquired for $1.1 billion by Oracle in 2011. Interestingly, Arvind and I connected at different points in Andrew's journey. I think the two different vantage points should make for a great conversation. Thanks for joining us, Andrew. Thanks for having me here. This is a privilege to get to hang out with you all. And for your listeners here, I'm going to break the seal here. We're actually doing this with beers. And I heard that I'm the first to get to do so. Maybe the intention of the original podcast, but I'm on the East Coast here and it's a Friday afternoon. So uh, cheers to you all on this. Cheers, Andrew, and cold beer on a Friday afternoon. Yeah, I'm drinking a treehouse beer. So uh, some of you guys like a little hazy, come on this way. Beer's on me. I got hazy from the other coast. I've uh, hazy from from down in Paso Robles from Firestone. The mind haze, so always a classic, can't go wrong. Love it, love it, love it, love it. Wow. Thank you guys for having me here. This is going to be super fun. I think maybe just to kick it off, would love to hear a little bit about your background, your story. Would love to hear how you got Jellyfish started. So a brief kicker, like I'm actually a West Coast guy. I grew up in Oakland. Really sad with the situation, what's happening to Oakland A's right now. I just got to say it. I hope we can get a little more out of them. But I came out to Boston in the mid-90s for school. Computer science major, did not intend to stay. I'm not in Boston because of the warm weather or the way that people are nice to each other when they're driving on the streets, but life happened. My co-founders of Jellyfish, Dave and Phil, actually hired me in 1999. That's what originally kept me here, right? These folks taught me how to clean myself up, go on a sales call every once in a while. And I kind of learned the taste of what startup action feels like. The longer your career goes, you kind of like look back and you realize there's these amazing people I worked with. I'd like to get the chance to cross paths with them again. The reality is it's very unlikely, right? I think when we found ourselves available again in 16, we relished it as a rarity and we said, hey, let's try doing something together, not of naivety, but instead intentionality. Now, the jellyfish concept, you asked, like, how did it come about? That part's funny. I remember sitting there probably in like November 16 or something like that. We're throwing ideas back and forth. And then uh, I think Phil goes like, hey, which one of us is going to do the engineering thing on this one? And Dave and I kind of put our finger on our nose real quick. We're like, not me, right? I think Dave said, it's like, everyone's always yelling at you, right? So all the business people don't understand engineers, engineers are trying to business, there's no data. So they're always yelling. And then, you, you know, when you lead an engineer, you grab both sides, you say, trust me. And all they do is both parties turn to you and start yelling at you. So that's not that fun. And credit to Phil, he goes, you know, what's funny. This kind of like with sales was like in the nineties, right? When folks with their StarTac cell phones and their notebooks and saying, trust me, I got the quarter. And then ostensibly they don't got no quarter. He goes like, well, why isn't like anyone done like the Salesforce thing for engineering, right? And I think what he meant by that was like, look, we, we saw the days when it was notebooks and trust me to Salesforce coming on and every, you know, college kid knows you know, what CAC and LTV is, you know, call to close ratios, pipeline ratios, right? We're like data rich. We make better decisions now and companies pump more money into sales. Now they understand it. And so his argument was like, well, why isn't anyone solving for engineering? Why are we having the same dysfunctional yelling at each other kind of conversation still? And so that became the mission. Like we wanted a less yelling, more data, right? Solve for that Salesforce for engineering. And it was in that really trite, quick conversation that was like less than 30 minutes, probably like 15 minutes. That was the kernel of what we actually did. And then we did some homework and that's how we got started. That's uh, amazing background. There were a couple of things in there that you said that really struck a chord with me. You talked about culture and people before you even really started thinking about the idea. 
as Arvin knows, and as some of our other guests have definitely heard. I love talking about culture since we get involved with our companies at such an early stage. There's always that palpable, great culture behind every great company, and it really defines your organization and helps your organization be successful. I do have one very big overarching question for you before we jump in, because as you might remember when we first spoke, our thesis at Sierra was actually really around this idea of like a Salesforce or like some sort of metricing for engineering organizations since every other organization at the time, you know, whether you talk marketing or sales or whatever, was all going through this data revolution and felt engineering wasn't going through it. There seemed to have been some kind of attempts at this, but, you know, I would like to quote, timing isn't everything, it's the only thing. I'm curious, what about, I guess, 2023 or what about when you started the company made the timing for Jellyfish perfect? Yeah, I, I, what you're saying is absolute truth, man. I think markets and timing are like the at-bat. You know, the team is the batter. There's nothing to talk about till you actually have that timing. Now, the other side of that statement is you can't control it either. Some people call it luck, and I think it is to a certain degree because you can't control timing. But I think you can look at it and be careful about it and know what you are with respect to it. And I, and I think we were probably aware of some of these things because I remember we actually started with culture and business dynamics before we actually had concept. We actually had a process and structure that we were actually prosecuting ideas with. We had to bring some attach intentionality to the actual process. So we punched ourselves around why now, right? We had to convince ourselves on the why now. And we probably had three why nows that I think are worth calling out, like, you know, substrate, right? Like, you know, when I started my career, when I was coding, you know, back in the early odds, you know, we were probably barely doing waterfall. We were doing like CVS, SVN, RCS. It wasn't ubiquitous. We definitely weren't running common tool chain across companies, but you look forward today, everyone's running some flavor of Git. They're all doing flavors of Agile. They're all doing Jira-like things and they're all in the cloud. So they're presenting like number one, which is kind of technical substrate, but that doesn't make a market as you know, but that that's like a baseline. I think the other why now, the number two was actually just frankly, it's the Andreessen argument. You know, early aughts, a couple of us in the corner doing some nerd stuff, no one cared. When you've got 40% of OPEX on this, suddenly matters, right? Like. I can't, and, and more than cost, it's the, these folks are making the things that's going to help save or grow our company, right? So you can't ignore it. And, and so that's the why now two. And then the why now three, that's the absolute luck is this transition to work from home, COVID, like she's like, no one would wish it. No one could plan it. Nobody wants it. But like we catalyze in that moment as people work from home and, and then that push in that hybrid environment. I look at it as an accelerator that you absolutely could not have planned for. And so I think all those things fit together in a why now that actually is the timing part of it. But for future entrepreneurs, I don't think you can forward look into that. I think two of those three probably are structural. The third you couldn't actually call. And even then it's like hard to actually time all these things. And so I think it's easy to post factor to say you nailed the timing, but you make your bets going forward. And this is where like the world and luck actually chimes into you on that part of it. Yeah, definitely. Andrew, do you ask a harder question? Yeah. Please? Um, you know, there's a lot of tooling for engineering leaders and it doesn't feel like there's been a true breakout. So just trying to understand, is it a function of communicating value or is it expanding the zone of influence of a platform in the life of an engineering leader or the engineering function, what would you attribute it to? It could be something else, something, but it's a bit of an open-ended thought. Yeah, I hope we get to be the breakout. I'll answer in two ways. Like one, part of our thesis, not on the why now, but like how we make a dent was that we sat there in 2017 and said like, hey, 
we're staring down the barrel of like 20 years of innovation for line engineers, right? The actual nature of how people code today is nothing like when I started. The tools are totally different. The way that people do things, totally different. But the actual way that engineering leaders and their CEOs and their business counterparts interact hasn't changed in 30, 40 years. People are still yelling at each other in the same way. And so that for us was actually a pain gap and an innovation gap that just hadn't been addressed in a long time, right? So for us, that is actually the right part of the market, right? We, we chose not to do a fast follower play. We chose to go into greenfield markets in that part of it. And so that meant that we could make a dent by actually just making change to actually happen there. And I think you're actually asking, how do we make it a breakout on this stuff? And are, what are signals that we see? I actually think it's kind of simple. I actually think that we have a bunch of latent pain out there for engineering leaders and engineering managers in that space. So we're not inventing stuff. We're just shepherding and channeling and helping explain intuition they already have, bringing clarity to the things that they already have, helping them drive alignment, just bringing objectivity to that part of it. Bridging communication that like, look, you know, I was trained engineer, we're not the best at communicating. And we're trying to actually bring data to actually foster that communication to bridge between the business and engineering, not for just Kumbaya reasons, but actually to help make better decisions, help companies accelerate, help them drive better outcomes, right? Lead their teams to success in that way. The other part too, is to acknowledge, Armin, that like, it's easy to lump in engineers and engineering in one big lump. I'll, I'll pick on you guys. The venture section looks at dev tools, all these devs, they all like the same stuff, right? It's not true, right? You know, we are humans too, right? But there are various layers of different roles, right? You've got engineers that are actually coding. You have architects that are designing. You have project managers are trying to get delivery. You have engineering managers that are actually trying to actually make their team successful. You have you know, directors and VPs that are actually working with the actual CTO. You have board members that actually have different constituencies. As you unpack that part of it, you actually have to address different problems along the way. Just like there's sales reps, there's BDRs, there's sales managers. You can't tackle it with one. So I actually know the world loves a breakout as one thing that suddenly makes everything better. But I actually think if you address the problem, you actually have to look at all the different roles and their needs and you assemble them together in a common platform and a story. And that's actually how you drive momentum across that part of it. I think you said a couple of important things. And the only other thing I'd add is that depending on who you are as an organization, you're going to be at a very different point in your life cycle in terms of like what you're trying to build, how fast you're trying to build, are you maintaining, building, all that stuff. But it almost makes it a challenge to come at it from like the jellyfish perspective, because now you either have to be super opinionated and be like, hey, I'm going to be very opinionated, go after this type of customer or you got to be really broad. seems like an implementation nightmare to like try to figure out how to get into the people's heads and figure out what metrics. How do you like balance those two things? I think that's an awesome question. I think you can't be all things to all people. And also, you know, you got to have an opinion. Now, people can take that statement too strong. You could be an asshole and no one wants to do anything with you. I'm not saying that. I'm actually just saying you have to have a conviction what you're trying to do. And you have to be willing to say, I am going after this market and not that market. Right. And so for us, it was like, first and foremost, we tackle software companies, companies that are like software internet technology companies where they're making software as their product. And, and why? Because these folks, they, they're probably more avant-garde. They view software engineers as strategic. They're actually making the thing and, and they're more apt to take on new tools and they're willing to work with us on that part of it. But they also act as tastemakers for the rest of the world. And, and so I think you have to slice and dice it by saying like, well, how big of a company? Like, you know, what threshold actually kicks in? And we definitely saw dynamics that were like certain companies are, are like, it's not that we don't provide value, but it's not like they're in deep pain and their activation points at certain scales where they actually are in more pain. I think you have to know what you're playing for. And personally, I think 
nail a market or nail a segment, hit it, succeed, and then move on to the next. If you try to smear across all the things, you're not going to get there. And because again, you just even say things like software engineers, be like, oh, all software engineering teams are the same. They're not. Different industries organize differently. Different sized companies organize differently. They have different kinds of pain. And while it might be a common product, your go-to-market motions are going to change. Is it a two-phase motion? Is it a one-phase motion? How many meetings are you planning for? How do you onboard them? How do you educate them to educate others, right? Those matter depending on what titles you're reaching out to, what roles are in play. Do those roles even exist at certain stages? And I think you have to be thoughtful about those parts of it because I think otherwise you're smeared across and you're probably not successful in anything. I think it's a perfect entry point for this question is more around what assumptions do you think that sort of have held true over the course of Jennifer's existence? What did you have to read about? And maybe crystallize it a bit more, maybe think of it around the market segment, but also how do you approach the market or maybe just in general facing? Uh, maybe yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think like, look, this part of it, I'm proud of and lucky in this part of it. I think our, our core assumptions have held true from the beginning. We just actually had a mid-year revenue kickoff and our CMO actually asked us, hey, can you guys find some of the old decks? And we dug up some of the original decks from like 2017 and, and they still hold today. Like, which is amazing. I mean, they look kind of crappy, but like we could run that deck and it would work totally fine. Right. And, and I think that's, to me, like, I'm proud of the fact that we've been able to stay on the rails around why we're doing what we're actually doing, what we're trying to actually do and how we do it. I think to your point around like what changes, I mean, like, gee, there are things of the moment, there's the markets of the moment. We probably started originally working with companies that are smaller than our core ICP today. And I think we need to learn our way. And, and, and I think part of this is, you know, your early first alpha partners are all the people you know, and they're kind of more like you. And, and so we kind of learned different parts of it. We, we've learned how different personas actually have more influence in different kinds of organizations and learning to map that out. We've learned how you actually get a sale versus how you get drive adoption are different and actually how you develop those motions. But these are all tactics I think you'd assume. I think the more large adaptations are just like things you can't, like we wouldn't know that we all had to go home and in March of 20, you wouldn't know like how hybrid actually accelerated along the way. Um, I think the adaptation for us has been capturing the moment, marketing into it, finding pain points that are tactical. And then, yes, we have to be critical with ourselves around where our limitations have been around usage and failure and, and how we sell and learn from it and actually take the next step and iterate on those things. But I actually consider that's part of the course, right? I don't view those as big shifts. So that's just how you grow into go to market, right? You learn, you get feedback and you do it better the next one. That, that's a really good and important distinction, which is that there are definitely plenty of like Companies like a Slack who have totally had to go in a very different direction before they become successful versus the fine-grained corrections to make sure the ship is heading in the right direction. But I think there's one more important point here, which is obviously given your history, you know, with Endeka at Nanigans, like been a part of a number of tech companies, so you know the right folks who to talk to. I'm curious what kind of general advice would you give to founders when it comes to selecting design partners, because obviously it's easy to go to the people that you know, but they may not necessarily be the right people for, for your company. I think it's a great topic because I actually don't think there's enough written about this stuff right now. Um, I met a founder in the last couple of years who had been only been part of actually companies that kick, like very successful ones. 
And he was very dismayed, you know, a year and a half into his own or two years in his own being like, hey, it's, it's not getting there. Like, what's up? And, and I think we probably in a venture media setting over glorify the ones that just kick. But the majority of the time they don't. And so how do you actually work on that muscle, right? We actually were very conscious of this. We knew the thesis of the space and the problem space we were going to solve. But we went into it with an assumption that we didn't know what the product was. So the actual thesis was consistent and we knew that from the beginning. But we actually took an assumption that we're old, we're dated. We don't actually know what the cool kids are doing. That we didn't actually know the solution. And that was a very core assumption that we actually went into. And we actually draw on an old school playbook that I don't think people run that much anymore. So late 90s, early 2000s, there was a lot of companies that were essentially products built out of services companies. And I actually remember some of the sales we actually did back then, which is you, you kind of did things service-ish. You know, if you peel the coverage, you're building custom websites, but actually they're kind of paying you for that. But then you're actually like building product along the way. And that in itself is an art, right? There's an art in actually knowing where you want to go or the problem you're trying to solve. And then using somebody else's dime to actually go ahead and actually fund your progress against it. The art here in this playbook is to pick and choose who you're going to listen to. And so we called these folks and then said like, hey, we'll do whatever you want, right? We'll build your board decks. We'll do your spreadsheets. We'll do your PowerPoints for you. As long as we can, you know, work with your systems and your people. And then we use those conversations and, and what they saw might be custom dev, but we were building platform behind the scene. And then we'd learn from one story from one guy. We turn around and take it to the next guy and say, hey, is this your story? Does this work for you? Right. And then you'd learn from that. And so I think that is an actually under patterned playbook around how to do this. And I think it's actually really important, especially in B2B settings, to actually learn in that discovery, not just a customer discovery. I think people are saying customer discovery. I actually think it's, for lack of a better, it's a product discovery. Like, sure. how do you yeah. actually figure out what this thing is that actually solves the problem? You got to know your problem because that's your North Star, what you're trying to solve for. But then you pick and choose the people you listen to and who you work with and what you do with them to kind of learn your pathway along the way, right? So that's my big advice for folks that are in this kind of broad space of B2B kind of SaaS, you know, um, offerings in this space. I'm going to shamelessly start borrowing that product discovery. I think that's a better way to talk about it. It almost makes me realize and kind of understand and appreciate why some of the open source companies that have done well recently have done so well. Just the fact that you nurture the community, force the community to kind of like start building the stuff that they care about, they want, you end up having products that people really, really want to use. And, and, and open source in some ways is also a good cautionary tale because you also see the other side of it, which is like, hey, go from like zero to 4,000 stars, raise a bunch of money, and then, you know, just have a really, really tough time monetizing because you never spent the right amount of time thinking about like, well, what is the customer's pain and what are they actually going to be willing to pay for? I think even in our own portfolio, companies we've seen work in some weird way it almost feels like the companies that raise less money to get to that first million in ARR that first like couple million in ARR once they've gotten there their product market fit is so tight because you can't fake product market fit when you don't have the dollars to dump into sales to just drive customers at the top of the funnel and then from there the additional dollars really really help and really help you scale quickly on, onwards. I'm going to give you one more like tagline you can grab. So I have a friend, Rob Go over, and he and I were kibitzing about this many years ago. And I think he coined the phrase to me, which is product grit. I actually think that for me, actually going through the journey with David and Phil at this company called Indeca, we had our times where, you know, people hate your software. They don't like what they do. They actually want to buy. But those no's actually help you learn to actually find the yeses, right? And so that journey actually is that product grit you actually have to learn. And I think there is an instinct and muscle that comes about that. 
that is a little bit around this whole thing or who you listen to, what problems you're trying to solve, like how you solve it. Do you, does it smell right? Does it smell like it's actually the right one? Taking that same concept, applying to the next person, does it actually fly? Are you hearing the right patterns? I think we as an industry could probably teach and push that harder because we probably get more companies that actually ha that hit. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Although I guess the caveat, the flip side to it is you have to make sure you do it, but in a way that's not too academic. This is not a, like, uh, in a vacuum, like the, all of this is learned in the street, yeah. hit it, right? You got to get yelled at, you got to be wrong. It's got to hurt a little bit, right? Like grit isn't real grit unless it hurts, right? Uh, yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh, let me ask you another question, something you talked about up front around hiring and culture and like specifically around culture. One of the things that's really amazing about the great companies in the world, whether it's like an Uber, a Stripe or whatever, it's like a very, very simple message, but they tend to be very, very powerful messages when you think about it. Stripe is essentially turn all the world payments into an API. I mean, again, when somebody says something like that early days, it sounds crazy, but as they start doing more and more of it, then you just really realize how and appreciate how powerful a statement like that is. A, I'm curious, what's the jellyfish kind of tagline and vision? Kind of how do you think about that? And then how do you set the culture up in such a way that you do have the right amount of grit, you have the right amount of gray hair, but right amount of like naivete to take risks. How do you do that in the early days? When you said culture, my mind gravitated to two different things. I think there's professional culture, which is what functions are really drive the business going forward. The other part of it is actually your people culture. They're not divorced. But when I talk about culture, I actually care a lot about what we're asking of each other. I think we're really kind of people oriented towards like teaching, inspiring each other, learning all of those things. So you made the comment of gray hairs versus, you know, fresh ideas. Like people invested in me early in my career. The inspiration, the learning, the, the teaching could come from anybody. But also furthermore, that I actually think that everybody has to bring it. I think it's actually really important that you don't just say like anyone could do these things, but you actually hire and encourage people to bring it, whether it be quirky things like your own ideas and personality, the way you run, like the ideas around how you actually run social events to how you run team meetings to a new idea that you bring to the Thursday all meeting. So I, I think we ask and demand that everybody brings it and be willing to learn from each other, but also willing to teach each other. I think certain kind of people actually want to play both sides of there because You'll meet some loudmouths that only want to tell them to be allowed to do. And then you also meet people that are totally passive. Neither are probably right for our organization. You know, maybe if I was better with command of language, I'd actually have a good one-liner for you on this stuff. I think our role in this is to actually guide. And I think there's two ways you guide. You're basically guardrails. You're going to stamp out stuff that's actually crappy. As soon as you see it, shut it down. But then the other side of it is you got to stoke like a fire. You encourage them. You work behind the scenes. You drive it. Because the way you actually stand other people up it is the statement of values and culture in that way. Letting other people shine, I think, is how you do it. And the reason I believe in this is it, it's the only way you can actually be renewing of a culture. Growth companies are not the same companies two years, three years, five years from now that they are today. And so that means it has to refresh itself constantly. And the way you do it is you bring in new crew, new people, and you got to make sure that they stand up and you got to make sure you encourage it. You make sure you got to stoke it and you got to get the right people in those spots. So to me, our role in this as leaders is just to be a guardrails on the whole thing. And that's why I always struggle with a one-liner to actually do it because it's ever evolving. I think the comment on guardrails is really interesting. And I also find that it's such a fine find balance to drive as well because the other part of what you said is ultimately it's still on the 
CEO and I guess really the leadership team and the founders of the company to encourage, but to put a stop to things aren't working quickly. I always find it funny, like looking back on companies that are successful. I think the founders always say something kind of crazy every so often. You're like, oh, did he really say that? Is really something they're going to try? But I think it's important to have that willingness to try stuff. And, you know, if it doesn't work, it doesn't work, but at least try these things out. Well, one of my lessons is to recognize the companies are very different every stage you're at. And again, I air quote the word stage, but you always have to checkpoint or revisit. Like what is crazy at 10 people is differently crazy at 200, is differently crazy at 5,000. And the word crazy itself is not static. And you've got to revisit it because there are times, both because the needs of change, but also what a stretch means change and what the demands mean change. You have to reassess each of these stages because we live in a world of growth companies, it is not the same company every year. It changes constantly. I think, Andrew, something that stuck out for me as speaking was around do versus as a former army guy doing is actually showing and that's how you sort of lead the teams here. And I think somewhere in there, what molds you has probably got to do something with also your experiences. Right? So how has that experience kind of shaped picking the best parts of to formulate your own leadership style, maybe. Are there sort of telltale signs of, hey, this is an organization which could actually have spin-offs, which give up more startups down the road? I have been very lucky. I think I am the product of the journey. By the way, most of your listeners probably have no idea what Indeca is. Andrew, sorry, I, I don't mean to cut you off, but I do want to highlight that because I do think it's important. This was a $1.3 billion sale to Oracle at a time where billion-dollar sales were not very common. And so... And Deco was an extremely, extremely successful company and a very, very interesting database technology back when databases were an important thing to be built for pre-vector database days. Back in them days, it was a big deal. Yeah. You know what's exciting? A billion is exciting. <laughs> but yeah, no, I am proud of the journey, but I actually think that I am lucky both because I got to be part of that journey and learn from it. Also the community that actually has come out of it. Like we have, you know, an active Slack channel with probably a few hundred of us that we do everything from you know, people stuff, which is like post jobs, but also like we go as far as like share old furniture. If companies actually turn over, we actually help each other. We're often our first customers. Eventually. We trade notes on vendors. We trade notes on VCs, like who's actually good or bad eggs on that space. We still get together as offsites for each other on these things. I've been very lucky to be part of that community and to see it keep running is, is actually amazing. Now, how do you know? which ones to join or like, or which ones that are actually going to produce that. Of course you don't know, but I actually will say a couple of observations. Number one, a lot of folks want to do startups. I think that's awesome. But like, if you really have an idea and you want to run it, like absolutely rock and roll. But if you want to do a startup because of the vanity of being a founder, don't do it. It's not going to be a good use of your time. You're actually better off going to a crew because you'll meet more people, learn more things, and you'll, you might actually get better ideas along the way. Find good people and growth companies where you learn. I don't mean just nice. I mean, people that you learn from intelligent, those things that give you space and room. Growth companies just fundamentally have more people. And so you're going to meet more people. You build a better network along the way. And of course, you need that success to actually happen, which I can't tell you guys how to generate success. Otherwise, I'd be in your seat. Uh, but like, you know, but, but you need that success because it's a precondition, right? The success breeds hubris. It builds market brand, it builds a little capital to actually go back at it. So that I can't help you all with, but I think those things around people and growth are important. 
The other thing I'll actually say, Irvin, is I, I actually am a, a student of understanding why certain companies spawn more than others. Many and all functions are really important in companies. All the functions can actually cause issue if they don't succeed, but only certain functions, certain stages actually help you grow the business. For B2B companies, sales and engineering are the two things that actually are helping that company get from zero to one. You're going to make the thing before you can sell it. You got to sell the first one on that space. And so companies that actually are pretty aggressive in products and sales, I think are really important where you'll learn how to be that entrepreneurial mindset for B2B settings, right? Because sometimes I meet folks that are coming out of like scaled marketing companies. I think they're amazing marketers, like top of their game. But the problem is when you're trying to get to zero one and just the entrepreneurial journey part of it, marketing alone doesn't actually get you there. So I think there are companies that if you're going to do entrepreneurial training grounds, then actually in companies that are selling and product engineering oriented, you're going to get more of the muscles that actually drive towards becoming potentially future entrepreneurs in that way. I guess the question then maybe for the founders who are listening is, what do you look for? How do you think about the profile? Are there certain characteristics that you thought about at zero to one versus like one to 10 versus like 50 plus? How do you think about hiring? I'll simplify it to kind of three things. I mean, people need to be smart. I don't mean necessarily like text it to score well or X, Y, Z. Smart in the sense of like adaptive, like not repeat the problem twice kind of thing. And that can manifest in many ways. It could be academic or it could be like war stories in the street on that stuff. You can't just do what the manual says. You actually have to interpret the situation and that requires a certain level of smartness. Number two, though, is actually, can you communicate and collaborate? It's dead simple, right? If you can't work with others, it ain't going to work. This is a team sport. And especially if we're adapting, like we're going to change our jobs, what we do today, tomorrow, next week. And if we can't talk to each other, it ain't going to work. And so to me, those are like the only two that are necessary around joining the team. Those are key tenets here. Um, but the last thing actually is I call it stage fit. I think too many startup folks think they're like, I got this big deal guy or gal that came from this big deal company and they're going to go do this thing. Stage fit is like critically important. You get someone too far along in the career, they need 16 admins and all this stuff. Traditionally, what I've heard is VCs generally like would love to push you to hire people that are a couple years out. To me, it's a little bit of a stretch, but again, it goes to what your growth path is. But like to me, stage fit is actually being like, are they going to... Are they going to be happy, thrive at the messiness that you're in right now? Or are they going to be scared by the growth that's actually happening and they're getting pushed too hard in that space? It's all the soft stuff, right? Are they going to thrive or survive in the messiness of this stuff? Because like there's all forms of messy and I think it's critically important to understand their stage fit. And how do you actually manage a stage fit? I, I, generally, humans do exactly what they did the last job, right? And so the job they came, is it like where you want to be in a year? Because they're just going to show up and do that thing. And so they might drag you there. But you can see it based on like questions they ask you during interviews. I actually think the open-ended part of the interview where you let them ask you about anything is what you learn a ton about it. Because people always ask you questions about what they're most scared about. What they're scared about is usually built on the scars of their last gig. And so from there, you're going to learn a ton about what their mindset and stresses are in that space. And so... I don't know if there's a magic formula, but I think a lot about that part because stage fit is so critical to how people land in your organization. Yeah. I think it's one of those things where, especially for first-time founders, I think this is always the case where you hire aspirationally as opposed to hiring for need in the next 18 months. And I think that point that you made at the end there, which is the people ask questions about what they're scared about, 
will bring up so many of the red flags. And I think you can probably avoid a lot of the bad hires if you just kind of really pay attention to that specific part of the interview that you do. And, and the other thing that I think is becoming important, and obviously in the last few years was not doable, it is really important to be able to spend that face time with people, especially in your exact level hiring. It's tough to build a really tight-knit organization, tight-knit um, leadership team if you don't have that ability to have a beer with somebody and hang out with them in person for meaningful amounts of time. Great. True, it's true. Andrew, I know, we, I know we didn't spend too much time on go-to-market and all that, because uh, but if I could squeeze in one, yeah, uh, post-product market fit, but if you were to sort of think about what kind of kept you up at night and more, more from a like go-to-market point of view, was it like the recruiting element? Was it having the metrics in front of you? Or yeah. I think it matters what moment you're in. Frankly, like I, I, I don't have a better word, but I hate the product market fit word and I'm not attacking you on it. I think like it's hard because I actually don't like as a product guy, I don't think product market fit is static. It's a thing we're always working on. I think you said recruiting or ramping or something like that. And, and I think it's actually about the right people at the right time, I think is really important. And if you're a decomposed product market fit, I think there are times when you're like doing your first sales and you actually need sales leaders or sales people that actually are more pioneering and actually trailblazers in that space versus time that you actually need to be repetitive in those things. I think there's a lot of stages in that stuff, right? There's the founder sales, the first 20 founder sales that blurs into kind of the first new market sales that the seller is actually going to do. And then there's the like, hey, building the first teams. And then there's process and efficiency. And I think different people click in different parts of that. And actually the business demands different parts of it. So I actually can't declare one more important than the other. I actually think they're necessary stages and gates for companies to actually go through. So for a given point in time, one of those is absolutely most important, but I think they're sequenced and I think they matter at different points in time. If you guys are building founder playbooks on that stuff, which you might be, like I'd actually go and map those out. Yeah, sometimes you get to skip the steps because sometimes, you know, product market fit magically happens or, or the market comes to you and describes like what the motion's going to look like or you copy someone, but you still got to go through it, whether you kind of skip through it or you actually do it. And I think just knowing what thing you're actually working on is really important. And what you're hearing from me is actually trying to be thoughtful around the stages and challenges of the time, because I think it's very easy to get caught in the media and the stories and, and the investment community where you're like, it's trite, like just you get this guy or gal, they're going to make everything happen. Like it never works that way, right? You got to work through, you got to learn it in your own company because every company's different in these things and it's a journey. That's actually a perfect segue into a question that we like to ask everybody. The key word there being thoughtful and intentional about what you do at every stage of the company. We all know how hard it is to be a founder and you just kind of want to run 100 miles an hour because it's your baby. But how do you decompress? Like, how do you take a step back from like the grind and like actually be thoughtful and intentional about what you do week to week, month to month? When you guys figure it out, you got to tell me on uh, this stuff. <laughs> I, I'm not the founder that's going to flex and say, I got everything done and, and like candy on this stuff, right? Like, um, no, I, I think it's a journey to learn yourself on this stuff. We're all type A people and we stress for everything. We see every problem out there and, and we actually wear it on all our shoulders. You know, everyone's always pushing on you, whether it's your team or your board, future investors, like customers, you shoulder that every moment. I think part of this, at least for me, like some people are great at it. You have to learn your own mental muscles through that stuff. And so. Some of it is learn to compartmentalize and doing what you can do, control what you can control kind of attitude in that space. Um, I actually think I do have some practical things that I do. I'm pretty active. I try to run every day and try to do a couple miles on that stuff. And not because I'm a fitness head, but because it's actually one of the things that actually just calms the brain down, lets me breathe and like help when I can, I got to go fishing these days or I go skiing. 
or actually I, snowboarding, not skiing, gee, like I don't want to, like I'll date myself. I'm a snowboarder in this case. And when you're in it, you don't let the mind drift into stupid worry stuff and you can kind of be consumed in it in that moment. And I have two little girls and I, I guess they're not that little now, but it's cool because it's one of the few things you can actually do with them. You're actually present with them and doing that stuff. And so it's both double win because you get to do something with your kids and you're present with them. But also it's a moment where you're actually not doom scrolling. You're not like stressed out about all the woes in the world and that stuff. And so finding those moments and those structures, I think are really important. Last question for you. This is something that I try to work at and I'm definitely not good at, but it's like that willingness to say no and be like, hey, I'm going to go do this, take a little bit of time off. What would you tell yourself from 10 years ago to be better at what you just talked about? I don't know. Like I'm pretty stubborn, so I don't know if I'd listen to myself. <laughs> Andrew from the future says, uh, no, I mean, I think a little bit of patience. It is a well-trodden story, but I think when you're early, you're impatient. You want all the things to work and markets of timing you can't control. It's funny, like post facto, there's a probably a handful of things that matter, but it's hard to know them when you're in the middle of it because everything feels urgent. And frankly, the whole system's designed to make everything seem urgent, right? I think when you're younger, you can blindly hit things and you probably bring more attack and more gusto to everything. And as we get kind of grumpier and older here, we probably get less able to attack as hard, but instead we actually are able to be more thoughtful and intentional and step back a little bit. You gotta pause, you gotta make your trades and block your time accordingly, but I don't know if the younger me would hear it. You need to kind of go through the journey to actually come to the conclusion on the other side. Yeah, I think that's a good place to leave it. And I think it's a really interesting and thought-provoking note to keep it as well. Andrew, really, really, really appreciate you taking time on a Friday to grab a beer with us and talk through all things startups and founders and building companies. I'm sure our listeners will get a ton of value from this. And so thank you again and hope you have a great weekend. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Andrew.